This is the Roaring Elephant podcast, and as always, I am joined by my. Uh, you're my co-host, right? I'm misunderstanding that. I I, th- I think I'm your co-host. I don't think we have a misunderstanding there, but we are going to be talking about other misunderstandings. Uh, so we're continuing our journey through the uh, apparently four common misunderstandings about enterprise open source. We should probably actually say at the end if we think that there are other misunderstandings, but uh, we'll cover the first uh, ones that they believe are most important before we dive into our own thoughts. And that is, we're at number three, which is the main misunderstanding number three, the main attraction of enterprise open source software is its lower cost. We talked a lot about cost during misunderstanding two, Mm -hmm. um, with it being the most important factor when you're considering the DIY approach. But when we're talking about um, cost purely from a the main attraction of open source, the article talks about the fact that you know, this is where open source is where innovation is happening. But it's, I mean, open source didn't necessarily start that way. Like the open source movement wasn't originally all about sort of innovation. Initially, it started off as more of a like a learning experience. Do you think that's fair to say? Um, yeah, I was also starting with the it's a historical thing. If you talk about this ten years ago, then the world was a totally different place, and the whole innovative advantage that open source has today was a happy accident. I mean, or maybe just proving that community building something is better than a couple of people in a dark room thinking how to save the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, when I started open source, I can definitely honestly say it was because it was free. I wanted to do stuff with uh, systems. Uh, Windows was expensive. Sorry, DOS was expensive in in those days. (laughs) (laughs) And Linux was just something you could get from a magazine, got a CD or a floppy disk in those days. You could pop it in and start doing things that I would never be able to do otherwise. Was it a learning experience? Sure. Could have had the same learning experience with uh, commercial software, probably. But I didn't have the funds to to pay for it, so that's why I went to open source. So I do think that this misunderstanding in the olden days was not a misunderstanding at all. The open source popularity started by it being freely available, and that's a not a bad thing. Yeah, but then uh, if you want, if you go back to things like, uh, you know, the the Linux kernel was originally uh, an academic project to mm-hmm. like. To, to understand how to build operating systems at that down at the kernel level, and you know it, it evolved into something that you know now apparently powers the majority of of uh, of the internet and a huge bunch of other things as well. But it's you know twenty years ago, I would say it was more about the education than. Maybe 15 years ago, it became more about like it started to come out of the hobbyist side of things and more into early stages of adoption. Uh, I've got a bit of a different view there because I was living in the HPC world and the HPC world has always been very, very Unix. 
Unix was very close source. I mean, it was good stuff, yeah. but it was very hard to work with sometimes. So the moment they could jump on something Linuxy, even when it was still in the hobbyist uh, uh, scene, yeah. a lot of that environment already went, and that was uh, 20 years at least, if not more ago. So it kind of depends where you were, because, I mean, to be honest, the HPC world was also a very academic world. It still is. I mean, yeah. it's big business, but it's also very academic. And yeah. so from education, yeah, you're still right, but yeah. Yeah, I, and I, I guess I also mean education from a like learning how to do things mm -hmm. perspective. Like it was like there's Torvalds created you know the uh, the Linux kernel to un to understand you know how these things kind of worked, and it sort of grew from there. And because um, he felt he could do better than what was available. Yeah, yeah. It turns out he was probably right. <laughs> but then, sort of fifteen years or so ago um that was back when you started to see a lot more of a of a shift towards enterprise adoption so that was the that was 15 plus years ago was around the time of you know a huge amount of unix to linux migrations mm -hmm. it was around like a huge amount of proprietary middleware to open source middleware migrations you know, that was the sort of the heyday of of those sort of early motions for more of a, a mass market enterprise-wide adoption. I would you say that's fair? Uh, yeah, I think it's also the time where Red Hat and uh, SUSE kind of got uh, yeah. credibility and yeah. they had a yeah. support organization and it became um, enterprise viable, it's a new term I just coined, uh, to bet the, the house on something like open source and something like Linux because it was at least mm. a company that could help you out. But yeah, unless you've been hobbying with it before privately, it was all brand new. It was also the time when you started to see other uh, ironically closed source organizations actually getting on the bandwagon in some way, shape or form. Because that was when you started to see things like ISV uh, certifications so that that's the the certifications for people that sell software you know it needs to be running on a supported platform and you know 20 plus years ago in in industry that would that platform would have been you know most likely some form of big iron unix system of some description and then you know that sort of 15 or so years ago that the enterprise linux space kind of went through a, a massive um, upswing and you saw all sorts of um, software vendors you know Oracle being one of the big ones kind of doubling down on yes you can now run your uh, your Oracle databases on this you know this Linux based operating system and so you saw again that that wasn't that wasn't so much about the innovation necessarily back then you started to see bits of innovation here and there but i still think that the back then 15 or so years ago it was more about cost it was about mm. replacing you know very expensive very incredibly proprietary custom designed uh risk chip based unix systems with relatively speaking inexpensive slash significantly cheaper x86 based systems with again uh you know uh, an open source based 
Linux-based operating system of some description, whether you know, SUSE, Red Hat, or any of the other flavors that were out there at the time. Yeah, and it was valid for people like Oracle as well, right? Because the only reason they went to Linux because then they could get 100% of the income and didn't have to pay licenses to those big iron things underneath. I mean, Oracle never got cheaper. It's just that Oracle, and I mean, I mean, no Oracle because you named Oracle. There are, there are other examples yeah, out there. I'm not yeah. trying to point anybody out, although Oracle is kind of our uh, favorite punching bag for this kind of Pinata. stuff, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, yeah, it was one way of them to get more money for the stuff they were selling, and I yeah. mean, it's not a bad product. So it's uh, yeah. fair for them to do that if they can. So I, I think it was somewhere between. 10 and 15 years ago where this in my mind at least and this is purely my opinion um so feel free to tell me i'm wrong in the youtube comments um or yon will tell me i'm wrong anyway uh but somewhere between 10 to 15 years ago i think that's where we started to see more sort of pure innovation happening in open source and it being less of a copycatting something that already exists, but re replicating it in open source. Well, I think both are still going on because I think there was a time where .NET became uh, popular. And uh, one of the main, let's copy that uh, project in Linux that I was aware of at the time was the, the, the Mono project, which was basically rewriting the whole .NET framework in Linux without uh, Microsoft's uh, interaction. So that was still going on, but you're right. At that point, there was enough critical mass, let's call it that, uh, in open source communities, people were getting together and being free to do whatever they want to do and having so much of it. And I think it's actually a big part of uh, having a million monkeys in the room typing the typewriter and you get the best novel out there. I mean, it's not that every single initiative in open source was brilliant and bound to be successful. It's just there was so much creativity going on and the cream kind of rose to the top and that's how the whole thing started snowballing i guess yeah yeah i mean fast forward fast forward to where we are today things like um it it would be very difficult i think to imagine what the world of devops for example would have looked like without open source without all of these different tools and technologies like would i think it might be quite a different space well we wouldn't have needed it because as long as we needed devops engineering because of the complexity that open source kind of created because mm. a lot of different things having to work together and have built trees and pipelines and things like that you needed some management software around that if you didn't have the whole open source uh, thing happening then you would still be buying the ibm suite and that would be your thing and you wouldn't need yeah. devops stuff yeah, so, yeah, 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 good point. So it would be very different. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when we're talking about, um, so the DevOps space, the cloud native space, in fact, clouds at all, like you would basically, without open source innovation, you'd have VMware Cloud. Well, Azure you know, was Microsoft's... one point a Windows-only cloud. That was their yeah. whole idea. It was called Red something. Then I forget the code name was 
forgot, but it was supposed to be a Windows cloud. And it's only because Amazon was so big on Linux, on open source, mm. that Microsoft kind of had to pivot around that. And a lot of other things happened at Lin uh, Microsoft at that point. Uh, the Ballmer era ended, so the Nadello era started. So much more than that. But uh, I mean, people in those days really thought they could do it on closed source stuff. And the hypervisor that Azure is running is still a closed source hypervisor. As far as I know, Hyper-V mm. has not uh, been open sourced at all. And if you're just talking yeah. about cloud, then the hypervisor is a piece of tech you need, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, AWS is is all in on on Zen or Zen derived, yeah. I should say. It's not uh, it's not upstream Zen. You mean AWS um, doesn't commit back to open source? No. Uh, that's definitely a topic for another conversation <laughs> of the other day. Or several other days, um, possibly over a drink or two. Um, so yeah, I mean the the cloud the cloud space as a whole would would look very different. Um, I mean cloud cloud native would as a as a thing would look very different in itself. Like you know, no no Kubernetes, no sort of you can roll your own or you can run this thing across multiple vendors? I don't think so, because Kubernetes is basically containerization, and it's a follow-on evolution on, on, on virtualization. So I think that would have still happened even in non-open source environments. Probably would have taken a lot longer because closed source doesn't have that drive to innovate just for the heck of it. I mean, that's mm. basically where Docker containers came from, right? C groups from Linux, and hey, let's see if we can do more with that because without any kind of return on investment plan or whatever, just see what, what sticks to the wall, basically. But I do still think we would have something like that eventually because the moment you go into the hyperscale situation, that couple of percentage points of performance you can shave off by not having a hypervisor in between, but being in, in, in container space, it becomes massive. So I kind of think that would work. Thing that I'm wondering about is if it would have more or less SaaS services, because SaaS service is a bigger uh, lock-in than mm. non-SaaS services. It's harder to move on to other parts. So I would assume that, and that's basically also we can uh, maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but AWS always was very hard on the IaaS part. A lot of VMs and build your cluster, mm. do your stuff. While Azure, coming from the more more closed source space, uh, very early uh, double down on SaaS services. So that was a different look at the at the cloud space. Yeah, yeah, and I I think they're roughly kind of neck and neck now in terms yeah. of their focus. Um, I think it did take, I think it did take AWS a little bit by surprise just how much of a, a shift they needed to make. Again, this was this is something that years ago at this point, but. One of the thing, another area that I think would be kind of drastically different is the whole kind of artificial intelligence yeah. machine learning space. I don't, I mean, there are you know, a huge number of proprietary vendors in that space, but a lot of the innovation seems to be very much in the open source realm. Well, there's a lot of vendors there, but all the software is open source. And I think there's a couple of reasons. The main reason being that it's actually coming from HPC. 
And the HPC world has been in, as I mentioned earlier, in the Linux space for a lot longer than the rest of the world. They've been in open source, in collaborative and academia, and that's where all of this machine learning is coming up. And now I'm talking about the actual basic underlying machine learning algorithm space, how the model mm -hmm. training and things like that. Obviously, there's vendors out there like uh, Cloudera, H2O, a bunch of other ones who have built kind of management layers around it, model management layers, uh, ways to store data, whatever. And those are commercial if you like, although there's a couple of uh, open source ones there as well. But all the underlying thing, all of the actual mathematics behind it, that basically is coming from the HPC world. And that's always been open source. So it's going to stay that way. And without open source, I don't think we would actually have anything close to the AI we have today. So why, why is this? I mean, why do you think that open source has, has been such a growth engine, innovation engine for, for so many of these, of these kind of different disciplines or areas? Because as with HPC, machine learning and artificial intelligence, you need a lot of minds to try stuff out and see what works. It's a lot of experimentation. And if you do this, not in the open space, but in a closed space, the moment you have something that works, you patent it, you lock it down, you make sure nobody can ever use this thing again, <laughs> blocking that way forward. Now, that isn't what's going to happen today, because now open source and the culture of open source is so ingrained, even in the commercial world, patenting stuff has been less and less and less. Uh, a driver for big business is still there, but mm -hmm. they usually do it to protect it, to make it open. So it's ways of doing it right, I guess. But if the open source movement hadn't been there, we would have still been in the old IBM, Microsoft, Oracle, Zeitgeist, where have something that works, patent it down, it's mine, nobody else. And I mean, things like TensorFlow, things like uh, the, 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 the NLP libraries we have and things like that, they actually mm -hmm. came from competitions <clears throat> where you actually had to submit your own new algorithm for competition and put it in the open I mean, that would never happen if you hadn't it didn't have an open source thing around it yeah and i think it's it's also it's also the fact that this is all done yes it's all done in the open but it's all done in a method that is so very highly distributed yeah. as well like anyone in the world with you know ideally some form of internet connection that makes life much easier <laughs> but um can 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 sort of view the code, see a project, contribute to it, you know, um, provide some sort of insight into it and can drive that project forward. Yeah. Anyone can like file a PR with a, an improvement. Anyone can spin up a new project yeah. with some ideas and that community that can, that can form around it can also be made up of people anywhere in the world. Yeah, and don't forget the added value of just using the product. Because just being able to download it and use it in something you're building, hobby or not hobby, whatever, you using it makes that project popular. If a lot of people mm. just use it, it becomes popular. And from those users, a small percentage will become committers, perhaps, will become people at the end of the project. But you need the first barrier of entry is having people use the thing. Because if nobody uses yeah. it, it's not going to have a community because apparently it's not interesting. And the original people that started it will kind of get disillusioned and say, okay, that was good. Nobody thinks, okay, I'll, I'll forget it, do something else. Just it being out on GitHub these days and being able to download it, do something with it. And then a blog appears, hey, I use this project here to build this cute thing. 
that's again also how you get the ball rolling and i mean often i hear people say that just consuming open source and not contributing back is uh is not good it's um how do you call that it's like a virus you're using it you know it's, you shouldn't be doing no you should be doing that because if nobody used the stuff it would never mm. get popular so never yeah. feel bad to just download a piece of software and start using it if you want to give back the least you can do is just tell the world you're using it that's already yeah, helping yeah. the project yeah, no, very good. Um, very good point. But, you know, if you do feel like contributing back, Obviously. like there is, like there's always plenty of low-hanging fruit. Like there's always, you know, documentation to improve. You know, maybe you, you find something where there's a bit of a rough edge. There's bugs you can file. Yeah. Um, you know, don't like, get disillusioned or disheartened if like someone doesn't immediately jump on that bug that you filed an hour later and like <laughs> resolve the the issue or the challenge like that's not really how most well, of this you have a lot of control of the there right i mean if your bug fix is like it doesn't work fix it it's gonna mm. take a long time when i do a bug fix submission somewhere i make sure i have a repeatable try this these are the steps and you're going to produce it i mean that's how and i always get within a couple of days uh, a reaction so it's a it's a the onus is on the submitter here as well definitely definitely but it, it's so i think the the sort of the misunderstanding here, I think the misunderstanding of the main attraction of enterprise open source software is lower cost. I think that, you know, you could call that a, a valid misunderstanding for today, but I don't think that's always been a misunderstanding. In fact, I think it was a very valid reason that enterprise open source adoption has reached the heights that it has mm -hmm. um today in this ecosystem like you know 15 plus years ago that was the real reason that you saw mass market enterprise open source adoption yeah i would even say today a lot of companies take their first forays into open source because of a cost-cutting measure I mean that still works let's not do microsoft yeah. sql let's try MariaDB. yeah Cause... yeah i mean there's the any time that there's a um a fairly significant financial sort of crisis open source solutions generally see a pretty significant uptick because organizations that have been doing the same thing for the last x number of years all of a sudden find that they're you know, internal budgets have been cut and they need to find a way to deliver the same services that they're delivering internally, but in a different way that, you know, they can they can start with the reduced budgets that they've got. And, and yeah, enterprise solutions, are, enterprise open source solutions are often, you know, on the table, even if historically they hadn't been considered. Yeah, and often they need to do more with less. They need to do more with, with smaller budgets. Mm. And that's where that happy coincidence of open source also being traditionally more innovative, more flexible, more performant, whatever performance you're measuring. It's the thing that helps them uh, yeah, survive in the tough world of business today. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Well, unless there's anything else from you, Nope. Let's close this one off and go to number four next week. Indeed. Well, that is all the time we have for today. You can support the podcast. You can support the podcast even <laughs> by becoming a Patreon. 
every contribution helps. Maybe it would help my tongue get some speaking lessons. We are on YouTube. You can like, you can subscribe, you can guess what weird and wonderful world word I was saying. You can hit the notification bell, you can comment and do all the YouTube things. Please go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page and for more information about the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag and send your feedback if you're that way inclined to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is History Lesson Dave. <laughs> True. And my name is, I guess I'm valued a little bit higher than open source. Yum. And we look forward to talking to you next week. <laughs> Goodbye. See you then. <laughs>